0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Queens of Hustle podcast. In this podcast, me and my guests will be exploring fitness, culture, business, media, and everything in between. My name is Kiana and I am your host. I'm a professional pole dancer, fitness trainer, and social media manager with a background in journalism and a degree in communications. I am extremely passionate about personal development and talking to other queens about their dreams, hustle, mindset, motivation, and success, as well as valuable lessons they have learned throughout their experiences. Here is a space where we can have healthy and expansive conversations that can help you in the next step of your journey. Let's get started. Hey everyone and welcome to the Queens of Hustle podcast. My name is Kiana and I am your host. It is currently Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. Yes, we've just started a new year and I'm feeling really excited about it. Although I'm a firm believer that we can always make a change and set new goals on any given day, I do love and appreciate the new year because it's just an opportunity for us to reflect on our lives and have a true reset. We can look at our relationships, our careers and our goals and see where we can make changes for a happier future. So my holiday season was interesting to say the least. I caught COVID the week before Christmas. Um, Yeah, to be honest, it wasn't ideal. However, I did have some... Um, I had to do some mindset work in order to not be super sad about the whole situation and I thought that it would be a good opportunity for me to share some of these mindset switches that I did so that I wasn't miserable and that I actually could have some sort of fun so one of the first things that I did was practice of course gratitude so just really acknowledging the things that I have and looking at things from a fresh perspective so for example yes i had covid at a really really shitty time however my symptoms are very mild whereas they could have been way worse so yes i was super ill for one day um where i genuinely was like bedridden and couldn't really do much but then after that i was on the mend and i'm really really grateful for that um On top of that, in regards to COVID, I have not really lost um, anybody or I I don't have any friends or family members who have been severely affected by COVID. And I do think that that's very, very lucky because I know that there are millions um, of people all around the world who have been severely, severely affected by COVID. So it's something that I have to be grateful for that all of my friends, my family and everyone in my circle, they're safe and they're healthy. And although, of course, the timing of it it all was really annoying, however, there were so many people that were infected during the holidays. This was like our biggest peak, right? So uh, record numbers in regards to people infected by COVID-19. So I knew that there were so many other people in my boat and people that had it far worse. And I, I just didn't want a whole like pity party. So I genuinely just looked at the holiday season as just 10 days indoors. I, I barely even try to look at it as Christmas because for me, that's not what Christmas is. Uh, for me, Christmas is when you're with family or at least I, I would have been in this case with my boyfriend's family because my family lives in Montreal. But it's when you're with family, you're eating good food, you're um, you know having turkey dinner and all that. And I, I just... Um, I just didn't want to look at it that way. I was just like, you know what Christmas is just cancelled and that's okay Because I'm going to be there's gonna be so many more Christmases in the future. So this is just 10 days indoors Let's make the best of it. What can you do? So um, I I tried my best to train I tried my my best to do some things that I didn't have time to do um, you know during my normal um, daily life Um, And that was pretty much it. For what it was, I had a good time. I also uh, managed to work throughout, so I still made some money. Um, and yeah, because you know what, I was like, if I can't do anything, I'm, I'm not going to just like, you know, twiddle my thumbs out of boredom, might as well just be a little bit productive. So I actually did some things, um, like to put m- me in good stead for the new year. So for example, I updated my website, which I really was wanting to do for a while, but I was just either too lazy or felt like I didn't have the time. So finally I updated my website. I also switched my entire, uh, booking system in regards to people who want to book into classes with me now i actually um have a booking system where um you can book into classes via a a website which is called book when so just little things like that just to kind of just make it i guess more worth it and yeah of course caught up with friends with family on zoom not as many not with as many people as i as i wish i i did but hey that's just life um so i'm really 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 looking forward to getting back to normal life Um, and yeah, I'm just looking forward to 2022. I really just cannot wait to see what it has in store for us. Yes. COVID is still around, but I'm not going to let that get me down. Cause at the end of the day, like, I think this is going to be something that we're going to just have to live with for the next chapter of our life. If you're always just trying to wait for COVID to end, you're going to lose out a really, really important chapter of your life so instead of just like just waiting and and saying oh this is so dreadful this is so depressing yes it sucks but you just have to make the best of it and learn how to live with it in order to not actually lose these really really precious years right because life is definitely definitely short so that is my little pep talk for today uh but now enough about me and my covid life um let's talk about our next guest so we have the amazing Carolina Hades, also known as at BloggerOnPool on Instagram. This interview was recorded a couple weeks ago, right before Christmas, but I wanted to wait to release it in the new year. In this interview, we chat about her background in journalism and how it led to the creation of her epic blog, Blogger on Pull. We also chat about her activism, the social stigma in sex work, as well as her research in online moderation. So we actually have only met once uh, in person. We met at the Pole Weekender where we were both judging um, some competitions. However, we've been friends online for a couple years. We follow each other on social media and she's just very, very supportive. And she is, of course, so, so, so intelligent and very well-spoken, as you will see. And I'm just so happy that I got the chance to interview her because she has a really, really interesting story. So a little bit about her. Dr. Carolina Hades is an online moderation researcher, poll instructor, activist, and blogger behind the Blogger on Poll website. She has been pole dancing since 2016 and creating campaigns and publishing research on shadow banning and social media censorship of nudity since 2019. Yes, we will get into the concept of the shadow ban in this interview. Um, She even obtained an official apology from Instagram about the censorship of pole dance in the summer of 2019. Carolina teaches both at Aquila Pole Studio in London and she also teaches online through online privates, workshops, and tutorials. Before we get into the episode, I just want to give a quick trigger warning as we briefly touch on depression as well as abuse. Without further ado, here is Carolina. Alrighty, so welcome, Carolina Hades. Thank you so
1: much for being a guest on the Queens of Hustle podcast. How is it going? Yeah, it's all good. We are in pre-Christmas full swing, so loads of logistics to try and get home um, kind of emotion. But other than that, I'm really excited to be winding down and also just to have this chat. Thank you for having me. Uh, My pleasure. And you're supposed to be going back home in the next few days, right? Which is Sardinia in Italy. Yes, I'm keeping all of my fingers crossed. My parents were meant to come visit, but then obviously the Omicron variant had other plans. So we shall see what happens in the coming days. Yeah. Um, and you, you'll, you'll see from my Instagram, if I'm eating a lot of carbs, it's probably where I am. <laughs> well, I hope you get there. I really, really do. Uh, so I've been watching you from afar for quite a while now
0: in the least creepy way possible, <laughs> but All I got to say is, how do you do it? I absolutely love all of the important work that you do. Uh, But before we get into anything, I do want to ask you a question that I always start off my episodes with, which is, what sets your soul on fire?
1: That's a really good question and a great conversation starter. I think, (laughs) and also in answer to what you just said about how I do it all, My answer is anxiety in the sense that anxiety is my main driver and I've realized that it's both a blessing and a curse and it's something that it it makes me really miserable but sometimes it makes me prepare in a way that then makes me who I am so I think I, I guess you could see my anxiety as a way for me to strive for better so it sets my soul on fire in different ways some positive some not but it, it motivates me, I guess. <laughs> I love that answer.
0: And I've only done, of course, like a handful of episodes so far. And this is, I believe to be my eighth, but I've never had anyone say anything like that before, which is really, really special. Um, and um, I can totally get what you mean by that in regards to I suffer from anxiety as well to a certain extent. It's I, I wouldn't say that it's um something that completely controls my life. However, I do have lots of moments where I have all of that built up energy. And I do understand what you mean by sometimes it can really hinder you um, in a negative way, but sometimes it could catapult you into just getting like Like loads of stuff done and doing it, doing it properly and and caring so much and being and being passionate, you know, so I actually do get what you mean by that. Um, So I've already given the audience a snapshot of you. But in your own words, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do?
1: Sure. So I am a um, an online moderation researcher. So I have a PhD in criminology and particularly in the uh, moderation of online abuse and conspiracy theories. Because of that, I ended up becoming a an anti-censorship activist because during the second year of my PhD, that's when uh, the censorship of pole dance started, amongst other things. So I'm also an anti-censorship activist and I am a pole dancer, a pole instructor, a pole performer, a blogger, a writer. And I think that's it. I think that's pretty- <laughs> Sorry. Only kidding. that? Seriously? Seriously? Come on. <laughs> it, makes me, it makes me sound uh, really like beheaded to be like, I think that's it. But like literally sometimes I write bios and I forget. Like I forget what I'm doing. Like, I think it's difficult. It's difficult to manage all of these things together, but it's also difficult to know how to present yourself to different audiences because no mm. audiences can understand or accept both things together. Well, I think it's a beautiful thing that in, in today's day and age,
0: it it we could do all of that you know what i mean i feel like um maybe when in in like older generations you were only just one thing and it was when you or or working two jobs was maybe more of a, of a big deal. But now I find having several jobs or wearing several hats is more normalized. And I really do
1: appreciate that because I get bored quite often or quite yeah. easily. I agree, I agree. I think, you know, I, I had, I lived the um, nine to five or more like eight to 11, you know, overtime office life for quite a while and I did not enjoy it. I did not have anything to drive me. Uh, and to yeah to really to excite me and to to you know to to make me feel like I was I was making something out of my life Mm
0: -hmm. and yeah
1: it's, it's helpful to have a side hustle or something like that towards you know avoiding boredom but then I also maybe the sociologist in me just goes like yeah we have to have all of these side jobs because we are so underpaid as a generation and we have so many Problems, as opposed to our parents, which yes, maybe had only one job and weren't as creatively fulfilled, but you know they could afford a house, they could afford to have like a fairly comfortable life, as opposed to so many in our generation that can barely buy a house. So I see Mm. both sides. Like it's good because I think yeah, like my my parents are in awe. They're like, oh, you guys can do so many things. This is beautiful. I guess we always want what we can't have, but absolutely, um, there's both sides to to every story yes
0: ma'am grass is always greener i i get it i get it um so i want to actually take it back to um back when you actually moved to london so you were born and raised in sardinia which, which is in Italy and that's where your family still is now. And then you moved to London at the age of 18 to study journalism. So can you, can you tell me about that big move? Because uh, especially as someone who has moved to different places in my life, um, I like to know how, how other people's experiences were moving to a, a completely foreign country and how was it settling in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I loved reading about your different, you know, experiences with moving. So, yeah, I find that really interesting as well. I mean, I, I think it's, it's one of those things that really shape you and it did shape me. Um, I'm, I'm the daughter of two um, airline professionals. So my mom uh, was a flight attendant. My dad was an airplane technician. So oh. they're now both retired but basically travel has always been in my blood. Um, they, I think the first time I came to London I was actually nine months old and my mom is obsessed with London. She used to live here because she used to work for Monarch Airlines in the 80s and she's always been speaking English to me um, from a very young age and taking me to London. So I think I had this like obsession with London growing up it was always there Mm -hmm. Sardinia is gorgeous it's one of the most beautiful places you will ever visit it's like a beach place it's it's paradise you you will see so many pictures and you were like that's Photoshop. that's not even real but it's not very stimulating in terms of like the opportunities you could get the things you could do with your life it has a very small town mentality even in Sardinian towns that are actually bigger so Because I had seen quite a bit of the world already from a young age, because we had discounted tickets as a family, I was kind of like, I I feel like I want to do things that I wouldn't be even allowed to do here. And I didn't know Mm. what those things were, but I kind of wanted to have the experience of going somewhere else. And to be honest, I wanted to study criminology from a very young age because Mm. I was into like, I don't know, serial killers and crime. And why (laughs) do you do this? I want to solve the case and whatever. But I just figured that studying that, which seemed quite complex and scientific, in a foreign language would have been too difficult for me so I went for journalism because it had an element of investigation and also I liked writing so I was like sounds like a good compromise so that's how I ended up in London instead of like in other you know British, British cities because at the time the university where I'm currently at City University was basically the best journalism university you could get it's still one of the best I think like the market is kind of expanding it's definitely one of the top journalism universities in the uk but that's where i kind of um you know started my journey in journalism and this is why I say that I was moved by anxiety because um, I I couldn't do internships at home. Internships in Italy are not a thing or rather they are a thing but you have to have more professional experience to get them so people that do internships are actually quite old and they're still underpaid and you know it's 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 not a great scenario and mm. You know, me showing up to my local paper at 18, being like, hey, can I do an internship with you just to put something on my CV before I go to uni? They were like, no. We, we don't even know you. We don't want you. Why? Why would you ever want this? Mm-hmm. Um, so starting a blog was the only way I could have something to show for myself um, before my, you know, before I started at university. Um, so yeah, I mean, this kind of show you shows you how Sardinia works and how like opportunities are really hard to come by, and partly why I came here. And when did you start your blog, Blogger on Pole? So Blogger on Pole. Um, was another blog before and another blog before that. But Blogger on Paul itself started in 2017. I rebranded it from a travel blog in English that I had when I was couch surfing by myself in the US. And um, basically, the reason why I rebranded was because my older blog was all over the place. I was like, talking about travel and talking about food but suddenly there was this big thing about pole dancing and it was so funny because I had some boomers on my Facebook page that were like why are you talking about pole dancing I -hmm. came here for the travel (laughs) it was so funny so by the end of that I was like yeah I mean pole is taking over my life so I might as well just change that and um, at the same time I was about to start my PhD so I just figured that it would have been helpful at the time to keep the blogging and the poll to that persona so that I can then keep any other type of writing, maybe even academic writing under my real name, even though gotcha. now, Yeah. now both are the same, but yeah.
0: Yeah. But then at that time, you kind of wanted just to play it
1: safe, which which
0: obviously makes sense. Um, so I wanted to actually uh, go back to when you moved to Australia. Mm-hmm. So at, at some point when you moved to London, you were studying journalism and then you were like, Okay. Now I want to pursue a master's in in criminology. I'm going to go to Australia. So this is where you actually found pole. This is where you started pole and you started your pole journey. So can you tell me about that experience of living in Sydney and and, uh, studying in criminology? What was that whole experience like?
1: Yeah, sure. Which I believe is an experience we share as well, right? Exactly. (laughs) It's weird that we never met in the pole world, but maybe you were a lot more advanced than me at at the time, as you still are, to be honest. I can't do anything that you do. Hey, that is, first of
0: all, not true. But secondly, I, I was only in Sydney for three months, so we definitely missed each other. Uh, but I also trained at Sydney Pole, so that's crazy too. Oh yeah, <laughs> that
1: was my first pole studio, it was so nice. But yeah, so the way I I kind of worked out this whole <laughs> move into Australia thing was that once I finished my degree in journalism, I, I kind of went through a major depression for a variety of reasons. First of all, throughout my degree, I realized that actually I did not want to be a full-time journalist because I didn't like the way the, in- the industry worked. I loved mm-hmm. writing, but I didn't like the inherent bias within the media here in the UK. And I didn't like how precarious um, the, the working conditions were. And because I started right when social media were becoming big, It was so depressing because literally everybody would come and give a like a talk at my uni and they'd be like, yes, so I started this magazine in the 90s, but you can't do it anymore because, you know, journalism isn't paid anymore. I was like, why am I here? Why am I paying for this degree? At the same time. My blog was doing better at the time I had an Italian blog that I started, as I said, before going to uni and I was getting invited to review uh, places. I was getting invited to, you know, yeah, yeah, just basically collaborate with brands and, and like do stuff. So I ended up working in PR and that was my nine to five that I was referring to before. And I went through a major depression during that because I, I went through burnout. The, the style of like the working style was just really intense. And because I was recovering from an abusive relationship at the time, mm-hmm. I could not really um, go out and get drunk with my colleagues. I could not have the social life that these people had because I would have flashbacks and because the work was so social after a while I felt completely drained and I needed to kind of be on my own again so it came to the point to a point in 2015 where the PTSD and the depression they were so kind of strong so intense that I would I didn't know what to do I was completely lost and um at, the, at that moment, I won an award for my undergraduate dissertation. So it came a year after the end of my degree. Okay, okay. And then I realized when I went to collect the award at this really like fancy ceremony in Dublin, I realized that I, I actually really loved research. I loved studying and that I, I, I wanted to study criminology in the first place and I didn't let myself do it. And I was like, and now I'm like trapped in this hole and I just don't like anything in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe I need to drop everything I know and I need to get back on track to what teenage Carolina would have wanted. So I applied to one university and that one university was the University of Sydney for two reasons. Um, The first reason was that one of my contacts from my BA in journalism now taught in Sydney. And she was saying, oh, you're gonna love the life here because it's not too different from Sardinia because it's warm, but it's also not too different from London because it's an actual city. There's stuff to do. It's not boring. So she really liked it. And she was like, you're gonna like it too. And then also my abusive ex um, had a criminal record and he'd been kicked out of Australia, so that was the one country where it couldn't follow me. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. So I went there for these two reasons, and and I got accepted. That's why I applied to just one university because I was like, it either happens or it doesn't, and if it does happen, if I get accepted, it means that. You know, it's destiny or something. Yeah, it's a sign. It's a sign. So yeah. I ended up getting accepted and I ended up moving, which, you know, as you know, just uprooting yourself to the other side of the world isn't the easiest thing, but it's, it's, it's kind of worth it in the end because it, it's hard when you're there, but sometimes you just really need a fresh perspective. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And in regards to um, after
0: you started pole, you definitely became like instantly addicted, did, did you feel like as though that was the moment that you were like, okay, I think I want pole to be like really part of my life. Like this is something that I really want to do professionally. What was that that,
1: that thought process when you started to really fall in love with pole? Well, it, it was very interesting because... I'm generally really bad at sticking to things unless I'm amazing at them. And I was not amazing at pole. (laughs) I started from scratch. I had no dance training. I used to do artistic gymnastics as a child, but from the ages of five to 10, yes, I could go upside down and I wasn't scared of it, but I I was not a dancer at all. And I think because I didn't really have that many friends there um, and I didn't have a social circle, Paul became my social circle. So Mm. that helped me go over the hurdle of those first three months where you can barely hold yourself up, kind of. And I think to be honest, there's something incredibly joyful about poll in Australia that is slowly coming here, but I hope it will come here even more where it's literally just a big party. Like every three months, Sydney Pole would organize a showcase and there would be hundreds of people there. There would be amazing performances. There would be uh, performances by uh, level. So there would be like, let's say level two, you know, uh, like beginner slash intermediate they choose a song and then you perform it with five other people that were in your class. Yeah. What's yeah. Cause you feel like a girl band. It's like this, this super supportive and not even a girl band because it was literally everybody there like, yeah. from all sorts of walks of life, but you just felt like a team and, um, and the showmanship and the fun and the support, it was just really beautiful. And also because I was coming from a time where I didn't really value myself and my body as a result of that abusive relationship just seeing so many people people from so many diverse backgrounds and so many different looks do Paul made me think like I can do this and then Mm. the more showcases I did the more I was like I'm enjoying this I'm really really liking this and and people started really resonating with my journey and the more I talked about it the more people resonated with it and I think By the time I came back to London, I realized that because I had the time when I was doing my PhD, I really had the time to get better at pole and mm. I didn't know if I wanted to teach or if I wanted to perform, but I realized that I really liked performing. So I was like, maybe that's something to play with. And I submitted my first, um, my, my video to my first and only ever competition that I won, <laughs> uh, floor play. Uh, uh that won- yes, yes, yes. It's, yeah. That's in Sydney. Uh, Yeah, that's in Sydney as well, because Daisy and Amber, they come over to organize it. And then, yeah, so they're really lovely. And um, yeah, so basically after I won that, I was like, maybe there is there's something in this for me. And, and, you know, with the rebrand of the blog that went really well and people started really following me, I was like, I don't know what my future in Paul is like, but definitely I want Paul to be somehow part of my career. And then when I became an instructor, it was actually by chance. I started training at a new studio near home and they needed instructors. And the the owner was like, if I train you, will you become an instructor? And I remember talking to my ex and being like, she wants me to be an instructor. This is really weird. This is really weird. And my ex was like, no maybe maybe she sees something in you maybe you should do it so I did it and yeah it was I, I'm still really grateful that she saw that in me because I didn't think that was open to me I thought I was just gonna compete until I died and never win <laughs> right right so like what was that pretty much a form of imposter
0: syndrome that you were experiencing at that time because you kind of just didn't see yourself as like someone
1: that could be an, an instructor Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's something that sometimes I still experience. I think at the time, I definitely didn't see myself as an instructor. I used to do some cover classes for people. So for instance, Chanel from Twerkology Nation, who's amazing, she used to run regular twerk classes in London. And she kind of took me under her wing and she taught me, you know, the the secrets of the trade. Yes. Sometimes I covered for her. And yeah, I never covered any pole. Uh, But I don't know, maybe, maybe the, um, maybe the owner saw that. To me, it mattered that other people felt okay about themselves and got the move, because you know how crushing it is when you can't get the move in class, or you feel like a potato, and you're like, "Why is everybody <laughs> getting this and not me?" Absolutely. So I think she saw that I cared about other people, you know, feeling good in class, and she was like, "Maybe, you know, she's not completely hopeless as a as a, as a pole dancer, and uh, she she's trying to help, so maybe she could be a good instructor." I Definitely felt imposter syndrome for about a year, so much that it was crippling that I just felt like, why am I even here? Cause it's so hard to um, find a studio to teach at, right? Like there mm-hmm. are so many people who pay loads of money for certifications and then they don't find a studio to host them. So sometimes you've spent all of this money on certifications and you just don't make it back and you don't even make the experience back cause you could be certified. But if you don't have the experience in teaching, you don't have the chance to get better, even as a teacher, you know, a hundred percent.
0: And this was, this was definitely before, uh, teaching online was so prevalent too. So that, that definitely has, uh, that plays a factor as well. Yeah. Um, because now of course it is easier to, uh, start teaching online. If you are certified, you just have to like, you know, you can promote that on, on social media and all that, but then, but a few years ago or several years ago, that was definitely harder to do. So that's, that's very interesting. So, um, in blogger on poll. Uh, your your uh, your blog. You have discussed the stigma against women, pole dancers, and sex workers, and this is something that I find really important. Um, and I actually wanted to ask you, why do you think that the stigma is so dangerous, um, and how does it negatively impact the well-being and livelihoods of those who are being stigmatized?
1: So I think, um, I mean, I think it's always interesting that you know a lot of people in the poll industry are trying so hard to distance themselves from strippers, but then I don't think they realize how even that increases the stigma against women in general and against, you know, marginalized communities in general. Because if you judge people on the basis of morality, then you could literally, like, it's a slippery slope. Tomorrow, you could decide that it's immoral to, I don't know, shave your legs if, you you want to do it, and then you could be arrested for it. I don't know. It's just, I think when you base decisions on morality, it becomes very dangerous because it can become a slippery slope that really affects people and stigmatizes people and excludes them from spaces, preventing them from getting any opportunity to you know support themselves and to work, but also preventing them from Having the respect and love and life that they deserve, and Absolutely. I think you know, it's 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 interesting with um, with sex work in particular because sex work has always been there, you know, mm-hmm. and and the situations where sex workers have had a better life has been have been when their work was legal, or you know, decriminalized rather than legal and out in the open. While as soon as you make something illegal, something um, st- uh, something is stigmatized, then people struggle to come forward to ask for help. People can't even talk about what they do. Their life doesn't become any better. And and I have those conversations a lot with my criminology students because my my criminology students are really, really sweet, really smart, really clever. But they always come from a very kind of conservative perspective. Because I think when you're quite young, you're always like, oh, you know, this is bad. We should regulate it. We should get rid of all porn. We should get rid of all the drugs. We should even ban alcohol. We should ban this and that. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't look at nuance and we don't look at individual freedoms. And I think particularly when these notions of morality are set by systems of oppression, like the patriarchy and capitalism and stuff like that, then it's kind of like, well, why are you saying that that specific thing is immoral? It's quite convenient that it only Affects a group of people that you happen to not like, mm-hmm. so I think you know it's it's interesting with poll because we are such a gray area. I mean, we use an instrument that is used by sex workers and that we have because sex workers made poll popular, but then at the same time we kind of don't want to be seen as sex workers. But then even even if we do respect sex workers platforms ban us the same you know whatever we do so I think we we come and when I say platforms I mean obviously social media platforms I think as pole dancers we really have an opportunity to instead of trying to increase the stigma against sex workers I think we we have an opportunity to actually talk about where the stigma comes from and to show that, you know, just like pole dancers can be a lot of things at the same time, so can sex workers. Sex workers are business people. Sex workers are academics. I follow and cite in my work so many amazing sex workers academics. Mm-hmm. The fact that they work in the sex industry, the fact that they do a job, doesn't make them any less moral. And I think, yeah, I just, I just find it really difficult when a particular um, system imposes certain values and then you know that doesn't allow for nuance because there are people caught in the middle and as pole dancers were caught in the middle and it saddens me that instead of going towards the fight for a better life for everyone we've gone oh no i'm i'm a good girl mm-hmm. no i i totally get that
0: and um i'll i'll be the first to say when i first started pole i was very unaware and ignorant to this this whole concept. So when I first started pole, I was very much like I am a pole fitness person. Um, I I never used the hashtag not a stripper. Never did that. But I was very much um, at the beginning. I I distanced myself from it because i didn't know any better but then of course after meeting sex workers after doing more research after understanding that when you actually distance yourself or when you um when when you're erasing for example the history you're actually discriminating against these these people who you actually should be respecting or paying homage to because they're the ones that that paved way for you to do your your art you know what i mean so after obviously you know spending years in in this industry i now understand it and i totally respect it but i do understand what you mean by there is always going to be that 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 tension between sex workers and and pole dancers is there any way that we can maybe make it less of of of, a, of an issue or of a struggle
1: well, I, that's a really good question because I think it's already kind of happening. And to be honest, I also think that after Black Lives Matter, people in our industry have become a bit more conscious of what they appropriate and what you know ha- how they talk about stuff. And um, and for instance, you know, I I always learned twerk from Black twerkers, but yeah. at the same time. I wasn't as clued up about the history as I thought I was. So when I got a certification uh, from the amazing vertical joes and twerk technicians, I learned so many things. And now I feel better as a teacher because I'm like, I can tell you where this move comes from. I can tell you why we're doing that. I can tell you the history of this practice. And it, you know, I'm not expecting my students to show up with a notebook, but if I can tell them where something comes from, then it normalizes it and sure. it makes it makes people think oh this is a thing that has a history and I think um you know we've all had I think it was I think the first person that I heard it from was strobes vixi strawberry we've all had our pole fitness wanker phase yes <laughs> when Starting out, where we were all like, no, 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 I'm just doing it for fitness. But I think, again, this is why we are kind of at the um, crossing between a very sex positive life and a very sex negative life, in the sense that you come to pole with this idea that it's going to be a really cool, strong fitness thing. And then it opens your mind to the fact that actually being sexual and, you know, working in the sex industry and stuff like that, you, you're not harming anyone, you're actually just opening up your horizons and your mentality. So I think definitely education, definitely crediting strippers when we can if mm-hmm. they created a move if they've um you know opened the studio it, it even just when you see students that are kind of like I don't do that because that's too slutty or whatever correct them and like mm. you know not in a mean way but just be like hey you know like there's no shaming here and, and whatever. And just uh, just remember that, like, you know, why there are pole classes that you're able to book into. Just remember yeah. that, you know what I mean? You could do gymnastics, but you've come here. So <laughs> a And, I, 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 you know, it, it bothers me that people really like the uh, titillating aspect of pole, which is what, you know, people like Gemma Rose say, you're kind of cosplaying as a stripper and then you put your heels back down and you kind of go and live your life, but you're a bit edgy and I think you know as an industry we're getting better because with strip clubs at the threat of closure in a lot of UK cities there's uh, strippers that are campaigning against it like in Bristol and you know pole dancers are supporting and sharing so I think you know supporting strippers in their battles uh, paying for strippers to teach you moves and you know because some of them are pole instructors as well um crediting them when possible and I think I think also just, rely, just realizing that saying, I'm not a stripper, doesn't make you any better. Like this is something that I keep addressing with people. A lot of people try to distance themselves in the hope that they will not be seen as a stripper, but people see a pole and they see you naked. They're not gonna change their mind. If they mm-hmm. decided you're a stripper, you're a stripper. Mm-hmm. You know, you're by you're just being a dick. You're just essentially, you know, discriminating against people while getting no results whatsoever, while we could all do better and use facts. Because I think this is what it is. It's facts. There is this whole myth about Malakamb and Chinese pole, which apparently in China is obviously known as acrobatic pole. And, right. as yeah. Pole. Yeah. and yeah. those are part of our history. There are moves that we use that are part of that too. Absolutely. But realistically, the pole dancing we know and love comes mm-hmm. from strippers the it's, body rolls the hair yeah. flicks that comes from the strip clubs 100 percent the heel bangs the hello boys all of that stuff yeah. Like, yeah. You know, it, it doesn't like the the people that in the 80s and the 90s open studios were not malakam trainers so it, it's, <laughs> no, they weren't. it's essentially fake news so i think if we just look at the history if we look at the facts then when people are like, Ooh, are you a stripper? You can just be like, no, but strippers founded my sport. So they're really cool. They're really strong. They're really sexy. You don't have to be like, Oh no, I, w- I would never do that. Like mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. Who is that helping? And people are going to be like, but you're naked next to a pole. And then what do you say? Cause you are naked next to a pole. Exactly. hundred percent.
0: So uh, thank you for that, by the way, cause I really wanted to touch on that because I find it really important and Sometimes it's hard to, especially when you have family that may be more conservative, you don't really know how to speak about your own uh, life, your, your, your own career without distancing yourself. You know what I mean, so I it's something that I practice a lot I practiced it um, when I was home in Canada, two months ago, I sat down with my family, thank God, it was like my um the, the Filipino side so they're, they're very, very liberal they're very progressive and I just like went out and told them like how like we, we need to respect sex workers and we need to respect, uh, respect strippers because that is where my art form, my career comes from and stuff. And like I said that at a dinner table with my like young cousins like sitting there, <laughs> like literally like I have like five year old cousins and I didn't, I didn't feel like it was wrong because I'm just, I'm just saying straight facts. D- do I say that in front of my um, more conservative Jamaican side? Absolutely not. I haven't, I haven't figured that part out yet, but you know, I'm, I'm learning, I'm getting better, I, I'm trying to improve, but it's just such um it's such an interesting, interesting thing. Um, so I wanted to now uh, delve into your activism because of course that's a huge part of what you do. And it's really, really inspiring because having, being able just to be a voice is um, not only is it like, it's scary, but it's also admirable. There are so many people out there who are like, oh, I wish I could just be able to like, you know, talk about this issue, but they just don't do it because they don't have, first of all, um, there's always the risk of backlash or you know potentially saying the wrong thing and all that stuff. So I, I I really do admire it and as someone that is very um, passionate about journalism, I love how you really do your research and it's really cool. So in 2019, you won Activist of the Year according to the Sexual Freedom Awards, which is obviously such an achievement. Can you tell us more about like your journey in activism and, and like why it's so important for you to like continue this uh, th- this role that you play?
1: Sure, thank you. Um, To be honest, again, I think so much of what I do um, owes a lot to sex workers because sex workers are activists in the first first place and they have to to be activists, particularly when it comes to tech, because they need to survive. And a lot of the things that we face as pole dancers, but also just as people on the internet, sex workers have had that and felt that on their skin first. So I think the, I think where I come in is that very sadly, I am a palatable voice. So I'm an academic, I have media contacts because I worked in journalism and PR and I'm white, which sadly, also helps particularly in this country uh, i have a set of privileges that makes me someone that people in the media will want to go will want to mm-hmm. go to and will mm-hmm. want to kind of ask things to and if i can i and and i do this i point journalists to the right people instead of always being the person that speaks because sometimes it's just not my expertise or my right to speak on specific issues but at the same time there's a huge problem in the uk in the media where unless you look a certain way or unless you are a certain type of person your voice is not heard and therefore if your voice is not heard a certain argument is just not on the table Mm -hmm. So, you know, for instance, when it comes to censorship of nudity, if, I mean, now it's slowly changing, hopefully, but if you don't have someone that looks palatable or that feels palatable uh, discussing something, they will just not invite anybody else to the table or even worse, they will invite those people, but the, the discussion will not be about the issue that they've been invited to discuss. It will actually be about their right to exist. And that's happening a lot in the UK media with sex workers and also with trans people. So much that, I don't know, a debate happens about sex work something and sex workers are cold, and then they're like, well, actually, if you could do this and this, we could be a bit safer. And people are like, but sex work is bad. It's, anti- it's anti-feminist. anti And then these people are like just being attacked for mm. nothing. So I think like, particularly because of my PhD in, um, in criminology and particularly because I was looking at online moderation when the censorship stuff happened. And also because I was slightly naked, but not fully naked, I became this kind of middle ground voice there. But that being said, that doesn't mean that my voice is for any reason, any better than a lot of other people's voice. So I'm thinking, you know, Hacking, Hustling, they're an amazing collective of activist sex worker researchers, or Dr. Star- Zara Stardust, based in Australia, who writes amazing stuff about porn and uh, online moderation. So these people exist, and they have a voice. And luckily, they are now getting the attention that they deserve. But I think, you know, a lot of where I come in, particularly in the UK is kind of this, this middle ground. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, like I, I like the work that I do. And for me, the, the work that I do is really important because it's my life, because it's my interest and because I want to see people's butts on Instagram and I want <laughs> to be censored. I want, I want us all to be able to have access to things safely. So the journey that led me to that award essentially was me in the second year of my PhD. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer. Oh no, (laughs) keep going girl. I I love hearing you speak. Keep it up. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, so basically um, the, the second year of my PhD, I was looking at some horrible, horrible online abuse and conspiracy theories on a high profile criminal case that I will not name because I haven't been publishing on it because if I do, the people I observe Uh, will troll the shit out of me and I'd rather not okay yeah yeah Uh, yeah let's not let's not go there yeah so it it was really horrible like essentially um a child had been missing and people had been accusing the child's parents of all sorts of horrible stuff and that was not being moderated by platforms It, it was there at the same time we started getting all of these notifications about the shadow ban which sex workers got before pole dancers but then it kind of trickled down to us can I
0: just stop you right there before we continue would you mind actually just giving the definition of what shadow ban is because
1: not everyone will know what that means good point sometimes I put that in my papers and I just write it and then the feedback that I get in the peer review is what is a shadow ban and I'm like ah damn why do I never define this because I'm just (laughs) Uh, but anyway so shadow banning is a light censorship technique by platforms where your profile or your content isn't outright deleted but it's not shown as well in the explore or for you pages of social media platforms and this means that you can't grow as much you can't um, network with people you can't find new audiences and because so many of us in the poll community are creators because we make money through social media and through this is how we book workshops and stuff like that it's just you know it it was really damaging when it happened to us essentially Mm -hmm. and so I I was in a weird position because as someone with like blogging and journalism training, I was like, well, I'm gonna be writing a horrible post about Instagram and I don't wanna get sued. So I wanna make sure that I give them a right to reply. So I emailed them without you know, imagining that they would just ignore me, but you can just say that someone hasn't responded and then your back is covered essentially. So that's what I was planning on doing, but actually they did reply and we started a conversation where you know, they were denying that shadow banning was a thing for quite a few months. And then over the summer, a lot of pole dancers' posts were shadow banned. Our Mm -hmm. profiles were shadow banned. All of our hashtags were shadow banned for a few weeks. It was crazy. You couldn't share anything, uh, or you could, but it wouldn't get any engagement. So at that same time, Michelle Shimmy, Dan Rosen, UPA so united poll artists and you know a series of other big poll accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers they started a petition against this asking instagram to kind of do better and at the same time i kept interviewing them and asking them questions in Instagram I mean and yes. I think because they the petition people saw what I was doing they brought me in and as a result with our combined following we gathered a lot of questions and then I asked them back to Instagram who then apologized about wrongly shadow banning our uh, hashtags and they reversed it. I remember that I remember seeing the article uh, of um, like
0: Instagram issues an official apology to pole dancers and that was really cool to see.
1: Yeah, I mean it was really cool. Yeah. But you know, obviously not much has changed. If anything, it's got it's gotten worse. But it was big at the time because mm-hmm. they put an eye in it. So it was essentially an admission of wrongdoing. And that showed us how much bigger than pole dancers and sex sex workers that story was getting because it was affecting erotic artists, it was affecting uh, photographers, models, athletes, uh, all sorts of people. Sex educators, sex toy brands, lingerie brands, like literally everybody that was not making the most out of social media platforms because of their puritan moderation. So as a result, um, the people behind the petition, including me and some other people from different backgrounds, we started Everybody Visible, which was um, a campaign uh, that launched on World Internet Day in 2019 to ask Instagram to do better, you know, demands of more transparency, clarity, communication, accountability, stuff like that. And it was so funny cause we we asked them to, uh, we asked people who joined the campaign to post naked pictures of themselves or like the pictures that they would normally post, but you know, with our call to action and um, tagging the chiefs of Facebook, Facebook and Instagram at the time. And if you went on Sheryl Sandberg's page the tag section was all ass, just like ass <laughs> Like just everybody from, you know the poll and sex positive communities just posting this Love so that. Much that at some point Dita Von Teese joined in and that made me cry because oh my god like my idol she's amazing so and and you know Instagram acknowledged that our demands were feasible so on the back of that I think partly that's what gave me the award uh, but since then I, I, I think because I realized that I couldn't really publish for my PhD because of the risk of harassment from the people I studied I kind of shifted my expertise into the other side of online moderation, which is algorithm bias. And Mm -hmm. because it's very obscure and it blends uh, social media marketing, which I have a past career in uh, journalism, but also media law, law in general, tech, AI, like a lot of things at the same time, it's very obscure. And sometimes people don't realize that A law made in America could trigger a lot of censorship all over the world. So I've been trying to explain it as best as I can. But again, you know, I'm only as good as people who share my content and people who um, provide um, support and people who provide the sources for this. You know, a lot of the things that I cite are, again, from Hacking Hustling, Zara Stardust, like people, you know, sex worker researchers and and activists that have felt this on their own skin. And this censorship is crazy. Like some of the studies cited in Hacking Hustling's report show that when, um, for instance, Craigslist erotic services was active, murders of women who worked in the sex industry, went down 17% in America or something like that. Because obviously it was safer. It it was an inter intermediary between them and the client. Mm. So it seems crazy to me that people would want to take it away from them. Like it's a safety. If it makes it even more safe. That's insane. Yeah. It's like saying your safety doesn't matter to us. That's crazy. It's really bad. Wow. Wow. And
0: now that we're on the, the, the topic of social media, um, I wanted to actually ask about that time that you got your Instagram deleted. How ironic is that? How that like you're literally battling online moderation. You're, you're, you're campaigning for that. But then after your Instagram account, and at that time you had like 18,000
1: followers, it got deleted. So how did that happen to you? And what did you do to get it back? So, I mean, to me, obviously it was a very stressful 24 hours, but at the same time, it was hilarious because I think it was proof of how bad their moderation is since, uh, well, I've been speaking to Instagram press since uh, 2018, since like Mm -hmm. April 2018. And I've been speaking with Facebook policy since December 2020 so last year after the petition that I launched together with some more um, you know sex workers and pole dancers and artists and whatever that is currently at 121,000 signatures so they know me like they know articles have been written about me we've been communicating over email and over zoom meetings they they know me they know my face yeah and then I go and post a picture with my 92 year old grandma out of all things and my Profile disappears, and it was the was a win- mistake. Well, that's what. So again, mystery. Because when um, when your profile is deleted, you're basically in the in the hands of the Instagram overlords they can tell you as much as they want to. And a lot of the times that is nothing. So neither policy or press said nothing else, but this was a mistake. And then somebody in my network who helped towards getting my account uh, restated said something like, it was a case of false positives. So it might be like a couple of things triggering things at the same time. But yeah, the picture with my grandma was the last thing I posted. So it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, it was just really odd. That's what I. I, That's what I said on another interview. Was like, ass is fine, but we draw the line at grandmas. are you doing it was really weird so obviously I panicked I of course for a while I couldn't even access my backup account because I hadn't like logged on to it for so long um so luckily some of my friends kind of started directing people to my backup so people who followed me realized what was happening and they started reporting that as a mistake in the help center which always which is always good because that way they get like reports and hopefully it somehow helps yeah but then uh, another thing well I emailed Facebook policy in the evening because this happened at 7 p.m Italy time so um, Facebook press or Instagram press would have already been off work in the UK so I emailed Facebook policy who are in San Francisco and then they said that would they would look into it and then I emailed Instagram press the morning after. And because there were a couple of journalists that were writing about this already because I was complaining about it on Twitter, which also I recommend to everybody, just complain on Twitter because that's where the journalists are at. Oh. Basically, I think that sped up the situation a little bit. But every time I ever got my account back, even on TikTok where I've been deleted four times, it's been because journalists um, in my network are like, what are you doing? You know, clearly she's a researcher yes, she's naked, but you know that she's not breaking community guidelines. And this is the thing, like a lot of people whose profile is deleted also do not break community guidelines. Like Mm -hmm. sex workers are terrified of losing their accounts and they know that they are a target. So they self-censor quite a lot, which is terrible in the first place. But it's interesting how their mere presence is viewed as dangerous and problematic as such so just by existing as a sex worker on a platform you are uh, you know under threat of deletion and that is extended obviously to pole dancers because an algorithm can't distinguish whether you pole dance in a bikini in a strip club or in a pole studio Mm. so you know like i'm sorry it's mental it's mental it's very scary it is
0: And you got a little bit of a, you got a little, sorry, but you got a little taste of what that could have been like, had you not had the connections that you have. But it's sad to say that not everyone
1: has those connections. And it just, it's just, it's very sad. It is. I mean, it's. I. I should not be in this position. Do you know what I mean? Like now, because I speak to Facebook policy. If people's accounts get deleted, I get a message from either their backup or whatever, and they're like, "Hey, can you help?" And Facebook policy respond whenever they're in the mood. And sometimes it takes months to get some people restored. You know, Rebecca Crow, one of my friends, who's an amazing sex worker activist. She had been deleted for a year, and I literally annoyed them for like months, and finally they got her back. But it's It's not up to me. I can just raise something and then they can just ignore me and I should not be in this position. They should have an infrastructure in place that allows people to have direct contact with them when something is going wrong. And it's ridiculous that that is not happening. It's really poor practice. It's really poor communication, poor transparency. And um, yeah, it's a really scary window into what? You know, being on social media is like for some some people, and I only got my accounts back because I'm a freak case, because I'm an academic and I have a profile, and because um, you know I have journalistic contacts and contacts within tech. Otherwise, it would not have happened. And mm-hmm. I remember interviewing you as well for my post about TikTok at that time, where you were getting your stuff removed over and over, mm-hmm. while clearly you know you you are an instructor, like you're a performer, and you 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 do stuff in studios. And, you know, I'm not saying that your content is more worthy than, for instance, a sex worker, if it if it complies with guidelines. But I'm just saying, you know, someone looks at your account and they're like, obviously, she's doing this in a studio, you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it shows you how weird their uh, moderation is. Yeah. And also um, how incorrect it could be as well. Yeah.
0: And looking back now on everything that you've done in your pole journey, um, because we're going to just start wrapping it up now. How has it changed you and your relationship with yourself?
1: So I think it changed my life in so many positive ways in the sense that when I came to pole, I I was coming from a very kind of self-loathing place because of the abusive relationship I was in. I had a lot of guilt and survivor's guilt and whatever so I think it made me accept my body again it made me realize I was strong it made me more confident and it gave me a tool to get out of my head because I I was a runner and I used to um, do swimming to go swimming as well but I couldn't do it anymore because I was in my head all the time and mm. oh you need to be in the moment or you break your neck so that was a really nice um, shift in my life but then, um, you know, I think, I think, yeah, it, it just, it, I think it was what I was looking for, essentially, because yeah. I always wanted to be a rock star as a teen, but I had no <laughs> musical talent. So that was my way of being a rock star of finding my persona and stuff like that. So that was nice. I think if anything, becoming an instructor has made it more difficult because pole is not just a hobby anymore, it's my job. Yeah. So sometimes I need to really work hard to find that joy again and to remember that it's not just this thing that pays my bills and to you know, remind myself to take rest days and to um, take days where I just train for myself instead of, instead of teaching. So I think it's interesting that I've pretty much removed imposter syndrome from my whole life thanks to Paul but the place where I still have imposter syndrome is Paul where I'm (laughs) I'm not you know I'm not good enough of a dancer or I'm not good enough of an instructor oh my god I messed that up I I did this or I did that you know like um, I think because Paul is creative and because Paul is so personal and so emotional it's it's um it's a constant self-development tool because it makes me interrogate myself and where my feelings come from, but it's also mm. a source of insecurity sometimes.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. That's very, very beautiful. And um, now that 2021 is now coming to an end, are there any valuable lessons that you learned this year that you'd like to share with us?
1: Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's been a year of learning, <laughs> I must have- <laughs> Uh, I have to put it behind me, so yeah, my my relationship broke down because of lockdown, and then so many other things like so many curveballs, including my accounts being deleted all over the place and fearing for the loss of my livelihood. I think going back to the whole imposter syndrome thing, um, if people somehow believe in you, then start believing people as well. Like, you shouldn't, Amen. you shouldn't, uh, put your whole value in other people's hands. And you shouldn't you know, expect that your value comes from other people's validation. But at the same time, if people are booking your workshops and if people are reading your content and they're paying you compliments, just stop being so hard on yourself. 100%. <laughs> it's important for many instructors because I think we're so blessed to be doing something that we love so much that we're maybe afraid for that to be taken away from us. And maybe we could just lose a bit of that anxiety (laughs) a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And what can we expect from you in
0: 2022? Any competitions, performances,
1: projects, or is that all uh, under wraps at the moment? So there is one big thing, which is under wraps. And I'm not going to say it because I don't want to jinx it, but (laughs) I I hope it happens. I hope it goes through. Um, But it kind of blends my whole poll slash research persona, and I'm, you know, fighting to make that happen. I'm also applying for more and more research grants to be able to do more research into the censorship of nudity. In terms of workshops, I want to do more workshops outside of London, and I'm going to be having one coming up in Manchester in January, keeping my fingers crossed that it can all happen because of the current situation. Uh, Because I I loved Poll Weekender. It was my first off-site workshop and also offline workshop because I've done stuff in London and I've done stuff online but I'd never done it in a physical space and it was just amazing and I want to do that again. Mm -hmm. And yes, I am also competing. So there's this competition in Rome called Exotic Goddess. And I I don't like the word exotic. (laughs) We talked about the word exotic. I don't believe it's the right word to use. Many pollers of color have mentioned it's racist. I personally agree, and I also do not define and have never defined my style as exotic, even though I had to when I taught in a Russian studio, because um, I'm just not exotic. Like it's you know the peop- the thing that people identify with exotic pole is just not my style, um, and I just prefer calling it sexy pole or I'm coming up with my own name for my own style. More okay. more of that to come later, but you know I don't like the term. But the reason why I applied is that hopefully a really good photographer will be there. I want to support the organizer who's a friend and I've never competed in my country I've never performed in my country and I want to have that opportunity because it matters to me because I think pole in my country is still fairly underground Mm. and I think that's why also the discussions about the word exotic haven't taken place because it's a lot of white pole dancers doing pole and as an already stigmatized community that has to deal with a lot of horror phobia and backlash they're still not there when it comes to a lot of conversations we've had here. So I'm hoping that by going, I will first of all have fun and get to dance and watch a lot of Italian pole dancers that I know and love, but also that we can start this conversation um, instead of having to kind of go back to what we've been discussing already. Um, So I think those are some of the main things that I'm doing at the moment. that that is if I manage to <laughs> relax and survive the holidays um, oh you will okay. you will but that's very very exciting would you mind just letting uh, the audience know where we can find you of course so I'm all over the internet when my ass isn't censored at blogger on poll <laughs> so that's facebook twitter instagram tiktok reddit Pinterest. I think that's it. And then I'm on buy me a coffee where you can find my tutorials. And I've also got a lecture there about navigating your full persona online, which is a translation of my full weekender seminar um, that cover some of the topics that we've discussed here like talking about poll to your conservative family and then there's obviously my blog which is bloggeronpoll.com on on there you can find everything you can find my research you can find uh, my articles you can find my tutorials you can find a lot of things so yeah I'm very I'm very searchable provided that platforms want me to be Love that. Love that. And I will definitely be linking. uh, I'll
0: be adding those links in the show notes. But thank you so, so, so much, Carolina. You are an absolute gem and I love chatting with you. I hope you can make it back to Italy
1: for the holiday season. And I will see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Super excited. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this
0: episode of the Queens of Hustle podcast as this is a passion project that I'm doing all by myself in my free time. It would mean the world to me if you would leave a review on the Apple podcast app or on Spotify. Feel free to share this episode on your social media or send it to someone you know who'd benefit from listening to this. Have an amazing day or night or wherever you're listening. We'll see you next time.